We're into the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 now. We've been looking at this book for you know a few months now. We've been looking at this chapter for the last few weeks. And Paul has been wrestling with an issue that the church was having about the resurrection and whether people really were going to come back to life and whether there was going to be you know, bodily resurrection, people rising and living with God in a new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And so we pick that up for those who want to follow along in your own Bibles in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined, and each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we've borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord 
because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Perhaps you might have wondered somewhere in your life what things will be like after death, what we will be like. Perhaps before coming to believe in Jesus or perhaps this is where you are now, perhaps you know, some believe, well, there's nothing. And so now we just have the most fun that we can while it exists. Some believe in some disembodied spiritual bliss where the spirit lives on and the body is gone. Or maybe, you know, like we have the clouds there and you see images of angels on clouds playing harps. Maybe heaven for you is, and then the life afterwards is never-ending Tim Tams or... There we go, Golden North Ice Cream. The clouds made of Golden North Ice Cream. Well, that might be a bit cold, actually. Now, our passage today is reflecting on what God has taught us about the life beyond, about what comes after. And I think it's fair to say our passage today might not answer all of our questions. It doesn't tell us about the never-ending Tim Tams or the Golden North Ice Cream. But it answers the important ones. It answers the questions that Paul knew that this church was wrestling with, these people were struggling with. And so he begins with their question, how were the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, particularly, Corinth was a city in Greece. It was, you know, a place where, you know, people had learned a long time from the Greek philosophers and the Greek way of thinking. And in the Greek way of thinking, the body was bad. Material things were bad. But the spirit and things were good. And so the body they saw as like a prison in which the soul was stuck until death comes along and frees us from our prison. And against this background, against this way of thinking of material things being bad and being all that is wrong with the world, a lot of the people who had joined the church and believed in Jesus really found it a step too far to believe that the body would be raised, that, there, that Jesus was raised to life, to you know, his, his resurrection form, the, the, the body he would have for the rest of eternity in a bodily way. And that led to all of this disagreement, all these misunderstandings that the Corinthian church had about you know, what would come when we die. With what kind of body will the dead come? You know, some have been dead for thousands of years. There's nothing left of them but bones. Will they just be bones when they come back? You know, or other people have you know, died in, in fires or been eaten by wild beasts or you know, bodies crushed and mutilated. Is that what they'll look like for all eternity? With what kind of body will they come? Now, it's fair to say Paul's response to all of this is, is somewhat blunt. How foolish, he tells them. You haven't understood what God has told you about what will come. 
God isn't a necromancer, you know, bringing up the bodies from the ground in the form that they went into it. God's plan wasn't to undo death for us. God's plan is to conquer death. Now we know that when Jesus came and he was ministering here on earth, he raised some people from the dead. He raised you know, Lazarus and the, and the widow's son and Jairus' daughter. But that was just undoing death. Eventually all of those people died again. Eventually Lazarus died again and Jairus' daughter. But Jesus did that partly out of compassion for, those, for the people who came to him and for those that he loved, but also to point us to what he was doing, what he had come to do, to come to bring life beyond death, to, to raise the dead permanently. But that couldn't happen. The dead couldn't be raised permanently until he had defeated death. And so Paul moves to this image then in describing what God has done and the way God has made this world and has made us. And he uses the image of a seed. The body that you have now is a seed. You don't plant a seed and then sometime later you go and you pick that same seed out of the ground or even like a bigger version of that same seed. Something grows from the seed. Something that is distinct you know, and, and different from the seed, but also that it did come from the seed. The seed was always a part of it. Our bodies you know, being planted in the earth with that picture of, of burial being like a seed being planted is only the beginning of what God will do, Paul tells us. And the body that will come is not exactly the same as the body that we will have, just as you know, the seed doesn't just grow into a slightly bigger seed. And he, talk, he gives all these examples of the different types of bodies that God has made. But then he tells us what we can expect. Our body that is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. Some days our bodies might feel more perishable than other days. Sometimes, uh, you know, the, we feel pretty good and life is good. And some days aches and pains and sickness and illness and we realise there is a lot more wrong with our bodies than we might like to admit. Our bodies are sown in dishonour. They're raised in glory. We like to think, you know, there's, that we'll look dignified and things in death. But death is not particularly dignified for most of us. For a lot of people, there's you know, quite a lot of deterioration in our bodies before we pass away. An inability to care for ourselves often before we pass on. And of course, the dishonour that's on us is also the stain of sin that will, even though we're forgiven... Even though we believed in Jesus, we still sin and fall short of his glory every day. This body that is sown in weakness will be raised in power. And there will be no more aches and pains and old football injuries and tennis elbows. No more chronic illness and fatigue. No more sinful desires. 
No more weakness, hunger and thirst and weariness. For although we're perishable, although we're weak, Paul says this is the seed of what is to come for those who put their trust in Jesus. It's a beautiful promise of a body designed to last forever, a body designed to inhabit and to, in the phrase that he uses, to inherit the imperishable kingdom. And the other good news is it means we don't have to worry about what happens to our bodies and what way we die and if we get run over by a truck we're not going to be all smushed and flat in heaven for eternity. And people can choose cremation and things like that if they choose. But we might wonder then, what will we look like? You know, if you know, the, the stalk of wheat looks very different from the wheat seed, what will we look like in heaven? And so Paul goes on to give another example. He talks about the natural body and the spiritual body, and then he talk, starts talking about Adam and the new Adam. The, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are born of heaven. And this is not the first time Paul has used that analogy, even in this chapter. Comparing and contrasting Adam, the father of all humanity, and Jesus the father of a new humanity, a restored humanity for all who would follow him. So Paul tells us we'll have a new image. Just as we've borne the image of the earthly man, so we'll bear the image of the heavenly man. We'll look like Jesus looked. Just as we've looked like Adam and Eve, the family resemblance through all of humanity, you know, just as we look like our parents and we catch ourselves with little mannerisms and little sayings and, that we got from our parents and the way they've shaped who we are, we will look like Jesus. Because, of course, Adam, as I said, is the first man, the man of the dirt, Jesus, the man of heaven. And as I said, all who are born are born into Adam, everyone who's lived. But all those who believe in Jesus are born into Jesus. So does that mean that in the resurrection we'll all look like uh, a middle-aged Middle Eastern man if we're going to look like Jesus? I'm not quite sure that's the point Paul was trying to make so much. I think it means that the resurrection body of Jesus gives us an idea of what will be for us Because Jesus, when he rose from the dead, it wasn't like Lazarus who rose and would one day die again. Jesus was risen imperishable. It was a resurrection rather than just being revived. And the disciples, they, they recognised him when they saw him. They could see that he was the same friend and teacher that they had known, but they also saw that there was something different about him. He could be seen. He could be touched. 
he could eat and drink. But he could also appear among them in the middle of a locked room. He could, you know, perhaps alter his appearance in some ways. We know when, when most of the times he appeared to his disciples, they recognised him straight away. But the two on the road to Emmaus, it says that their eyes were kept from recognising him. Now, it's worth noting, of course, Jesus was always able to do miraculous things, so it's possible that some of these things that he did were just Jesus things and not things that we can all expect. We know that he had a body that would no longer be able to die or to age. But you might wonder, but didn't he still have his scars? The marks of the nails in his hands and in his side for the spear. And the answer is yes, he did. They make a big point of that, that Thomas refused to believe until he saw Jesus with his own eyes and saw the wounds, saw the, the, or the scars at least, in his hands. He did still have his scars. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we will still have ours, that will bear the marks of what we died from. It's in the way that it's presented, Jesus has his scars because they are for him a badge of honour. They are for him a trophy showing all that he has done on our behalf. They are the sign, you know, the things by which we have a hope of eternal life, by which our sins can be forgiven. And so Paul says this is the hope that we all have, to either die and be buried and planted like the seed and be risen anew with an imperishable body, or when Christ returns, those who are still alive will be changed and the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. And then death will be defeated. And that wonderful phrase that he borrows from Isaiah, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death? is your sting. It's great news to have and to hold on to of the hope that we have of the life to come. It's good to know. But what does it change now? What difference does the fact that I will be have a new body, imperishable, and live with him make now? <clears throat> I want you to imagine your, your parents or your, your spouse or your children or whoever it might be brought you something incredible for Christmas. Bought you, I don't know, a, a Lamborghini Gallardo or a, um, I don't know, a, a big house down in Burnside or I don't know, what other things would you like? Your own private Learjet. Imagine your parents had bought you something incredible for Christmas and, and you knew what they'd bought you. You know, they'd told you that that was what you were going to be getting for Christmas. It's already bought, it's already set aside for you. It's not something that needs to be earned. It's not something that you need to you know, try and pay them for. 
How would that make you feel towards your parents? Or your, you know, whoever it was in the analogy that had bought that incredible gift for you? Even though you haven't received it yet, you know you're going to. And it might shape how we relate to the person giving the gift. God has purchased for us an incredible gift. Victory over death itself. And this gift cost far more than a Learjet. It cost the life of Jesus given on the cross in our place. The only way that we could be forgiven and set right with God was that our sins would be paid for. And there was only one who could live without any sins of his own and also be you know, worthy enough to pay the price for all of humanity. And that was God the Son come to give his life in our place. And he came and he go, gave it willingly. He said, you know, he, he's giving his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve. So even though the gift, eternal life, the resurrection, imperishable body, the gift hasn't been given yet, but it has been purchased. It's been put aside for us and we know that we're getting it. And that can shape, how that ought to shape how we relate to God now, not by trying to earn it. In the same way that it's pointless to try and earn a gift that someone is giving to you. In some ways it's almost insulting because they've chosen to give it to you because they love you. But it shapes how we relate to God now by thankfulness. Growing in us thankfulness and love towards the one who has loved us so extravagantly and so expensively. And as Paul closes off this chapter with it also, it gives us the hope and the confidence to be able to stand firm in persecutions and in hardships and in all of the troubles of life. My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Enables us. We, we can stand firm because that gift has already been set aside for us. That promise has already been given to us. But it also, as I've put up, it also gives us a new or a renewed purpose. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. What, in whatever we do, we can do it for God and then it's not in vain. Because we could think, well, if you know, this life is just we die and then the next life we last forever, then what happens in this life doesn't matter. But Paul, when God encourages us, encourages us that it's quite the opposite. Whatever is done for God will matter for all of eternity. That's every ministry that we're involved in, every you know, Bible study, every bit of encouragement we give to a brother or sister in Christ. 
every act of love towards you know, the widows and the orphans, the people who need our help, the foreigner and the refugee, feeding the hungry. Jesus famously said, you know, any time you, someone came and they were thirsty or they were hungry or they needed clothing and, and you gave them these things in my name, you were, you were giving it to me. That matters eternally. Our jobs that we go to day in and day out, our hobbies that we fill our free time with, even eating and drinking and whatever we do can be done to the glory of God. If you know, at work, if we work as though, as the Bible calls us to, as though we're working for Christ, as though he is the boss over all of our bosses, then even our work, which, you know, the things that we make may not last into eternity. But if it's done, for, if, if we do our work for Christ, it has eternal reward, eternal value. One day all of this will be over and we will all be made new and we will have what Jesus has promised us, that victory over death. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And instead of that making today not matter, it means that today matters most of all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the incredible promise that you give us, the incredible hope of a new life and a life with you. You made this world and it was good. And you made us, and you called us very good. But we corrupted your world. We brought sin and death into it. And now they have become our, our masters. They have control over us. But you in your love sent your son to pay the price in our place to bear our suffering, to break the power of sin and death over us. And in rising from the dead, you give us a great hope and a promise of victory over death. We pray now that we will live our lives shaped by that hope of eternity. Live our lives full of thankfulness and joy for this gift that you have purchased for us, even though we haven't received it yet. And that we might live our lives knowing that all that we do for you, no matter how mundane it might be on its own, when we do it with love for you in our hearts, it is not in vain. We thank you for the purpose and the joy that that brings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A hymn that we're going to sing today speaks about Behold him there 